All right, <clears throat> we're continuing actually today with the last verse in the uh, epistle of John. And it's just the verse, little children, guard yourselves from idols, which um, is not talked about in the rest of the book. And so the speculation is, you know, how, how does this fit into what he's done? If we read the first uh, or the 18 to 21, maybe what he's doing here <clears throat> is setting up a contrast between what we know and this is in contrast to idols. And I believe the idols here are representative. I don't believe he's interesting, introducing something new. But in fact, I'm going to argue in, uh, today that what he's talking about here in idolatry is really what he's been talking about as the false teaching all along. He says, we know that no one is born of God who is born of God's sins. But he who is born of God keeps him, and the evil one does not touch him. We know that we are of God, and that the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. And we know that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding, so that we may know him who is true. And we are in him who is true in his Son, Jesus Christ. This is the true God and eternal life. And then he says, you know, he says, this is the true God and eternal life. Little children, guard yourselves from idols. So he ends with three certainties, which we know. And the implication of his last sentence is that these certainties then are over and against, in contrast to idolatry. Now in the Old Testament, idolatry played the clear marker between, you know, with Judaism, who's a true Jew, who's a pagan? Well, if you're an idol worshiper... You're not a true Jew. And the Jewish idea of salvation was basically thought to be that if one kept themselves from idols, you keep the law, you maintain Jewish identity, this was what constituted the salvation inherent in being a Jew. But the depth of the problem of idolatry, I'm going to claim, and this is the argument in the New Testament, this is the argument that Paul makes, and I think it's the presumption that John is making that idolatry, in fact, marker as the marker of sin is much deeper and much worse than was imagined in Judaism. So Paul will especially make it clear that the Jewish concept of pagan idolatry, it's not an adequate diagnosis of the human predicament. He's Describe the Jewish problem and the Gentile problem, if you remember in Galatians, in light of the person and work of Christ. And he's saying the Jewish problem, a good Jew, himself as a good Jew, and the Gentile have the same problem. And John seems to be tapping into a similar understanding. So to understand how idolatry stands in contrast to John's three summarizing points, I think we have to understand the diagnosis of sin after Christ. And I think idolatry then represents in the New Testament this deepened, idol or, or deepened notion of sin. So Jewish identity of sin and evil, that was fairly uncomplicated, right? You know, just... Uh, 
idolatry and, and uh, represented all that goes with sin. But John has spent this letter describing sin, the devil, the Antichrist, as denying that Jesus came in the flesh and, he's ad- and, and these false teachers are advocating a Gnostic-like, you know, mind's eye sort of Gnostic or, uh, you know, knowledge which would separate Jesus, the person, the man, and Christ in his divinity and would presume something on the order of an experiential bypass of this world, of the flesh, of the incarnation, of the historical Jesus, they would imagine that they could go straight to God without passing through the humanity of Jesus. I do not think John is introducing idolatry as something different from what he has already warned the readers about, but he's saying that they need to understand uh, that idolatry uh, might now simply be, like it was for the Jews, representative of this kind of sin of disincarnateness. Um, That is that idolatry is the marker of a Christian notion of sin in the way that John is using it. First, it is necessary to acknowledge that apart from Christ, we do not have, we do not understand the diagnosis of the human problem, right? We don't understand what sin is apart from the great physician who has given us the diagnosis. Um, And this reinterprets the depth of the problem as understood by Jews and understood by Paul. The Jewish diagnosis of sin presumed that sin was such that being a good Jew following the law, oh, well then my sin problem's taken care of. The Augustinian Lutheran assumption would be to say, well, what Paul discovers, what the people in the New New Testament discover is, oh, we have a guilty conscience, which the law and Judaism did not address. And now in Jesus, we see that this is our true problem. I think this is a misunderstanding. I think what Paul discovers on the road to Damascus is not that he used to not have a guilty conscience and now he does have a guilty conscience. No, I I think that's a, again, we've missed the point. It doesn't explain why Paul can describe himself as having a clear conscience. This is what he says in Philippians in regard to the law. He says, I was a good, blameless Jew. In regard to the law, I was without fault, he says, right? He was the perfect Jew. And yet Paul is going to say, and I'm the chief of sinners. We have to be able to put those two things together. Does he discover that he had a problem which he was not aware of as a Jew? That is, Judaism completely misses the problem, I think. And certainly we can say, you know, it's not that Judaism misses the notion of conscience. Certainly personal sin and salvation is part of the predicament addressed in the New Testament. But to imagine that this is the extent of the problem is in some ways to miss precisely what Judaism provides in the way of getting at the seriousness of the problem of evil. 
That is, we're not going to leave Judaism out of this. We're not going to leave idolatry out of this. But we're going to build upon this. And I think this is what John is is doing. We need to approach the problem within a Jewish framework. Within monotheism versus idolatry. Torah keeping versus immorality. And so think here of the categories that John is working with. The whole world lies within the power of the evil one. And a Jewish way of getting at this would be to describe the world as idolatrous. To escape this world, it is no longer enough to keep Torah or to identify as a Jew. What the Christian is going to say, we must be born again. We have to be uh, citizens of a different country. We have to be reinculturated into a different world. The Christian diagnosis and the Christian answer answer both have a breadth of seriousness, I think, not realized. That is that Paul, on the road to Damascus, realizes that he did not understand the problem, the depth of the problem of sin. So it's not simply that Christianity shifts the problem to personal sin, and personal sin, uh, you know, I think rather that personal sin may be part of this larger framework of this Jewish framework. The social, cultural, and political meanings which went with the antithesis between idolatry and monotheism have to be taken into account. You know, in the Old Testament when they identified the idolaters, you could do this in one of two ways. You could just name the country or you could name the religion. That is, that people were identified, their culture, their socio-cultural identity, their socio-religious cultural identity, was all of one package. Um, And I think that it's this cosmic idea, you know, John's using the idea of a cosmic perspective. We must not collude with the relatively modern breakup of the problem of evil. You know, we have the idea of a natural human evil and human sin. No, I think what John is saying is that evil and human sin are a package and we have to see salvation as rescue, a rescue uh, from that world, but not a rescue from the world per se, not a rescue from God's good created world. So what John and the New Testament are describing is a salvation which works from within the framework of creation, but which exposes the lie of the idolatrous world. So the Christian does not continue to sin because he is begotten of God. God keeps him. He was born of God, and the evil one does not touch him. He was born of God, and God protects him. So the picture is this rebirth, this being reconstituted. It's more radical than Paul thought. It's not, oh, I, or, or rather than, than we often interpret Paul. And even than, as Paul thought as a Jew. So as John has told us, God's seed is in the Christian. No one who is born of God practices sin because his seed abides in, in him. And he cannot sin because he is born of God. The Abrahamic seed found in the Christian uh, does not point away from the fulfillment of the promise or a salvation that goes away from the world, 
but in the world, involving the personal, yes, the political, and the cosmic. This was our discussion today in Sunday School, that we can't depend upon Washington, D.C. to deliver us. We can only de- uh, depend upon Christ to deliver us. And the way in which it's a real-world delivery, it's a socio-political, cultural delivery that we have in the church. The redemption of Israel in her purposes has been accomplished in Christ. This is an answer both continuous with and in part discontinuous with Jewish expectations. The Jews did not recognize their own incapacities, which their scriptures would link. You know, they would continue to link with idolatry. They continued to think then of a a kind of flat world deliverance. And so Paul, following the prophets, is going to continue. This is there in Amos that we read this morning. Uh, But it's there in Galatians when, when Paul says, However, at that time when you did not know God, you were slaves to those which by nature are no gods. But now that you have come to know God, or rather to be known by God, how is it that you turn back to the weak and worthless elemental things? What's happening? What's he saying here in Galatians? He's equating their former pagan life with falling back into Judaism. He's equating the practices of Judaism in comparison to Christianity to their former pagan idolatry. That's an interesting idea, isn't it? But it's not an idea that's original to Paul. That's there in Amos. You know, when Amos describes the Jews uh, and their sacrifices, they're worthless. Uh, So these Gentiles have been won out from idolatry. They're being tempted to go into Judaizing practices. So for all the differences between Judaism and paganism, both involved subjection to the same elemental forces. This is Paul's argument. This is John's argument. All are unrighteous. This is why Stephen in the book of Acts, you remember why Stephen gets stoned? He equates the religion of the Jews and he quotes Amos uh, with idolatry. That'll get you stoned in Israel. He takes the whole sweep of Israel's time, you know, from the promised land, and then he quotes from Amos, I hate your festivals, I reject your festivals, nor do I delight in your solemn assemblies. Even though you offer up to me burnt offerings and your grain offerings, I will not accept them, and I will not even look at the peace offerings of your fatlings. Take away from me the noise of your songs. I will not even listen to the sound of your harps. But let justice roll down like waters and righteousness like an ever-flowing stream. The powerful words of Martin Luther King Jr. from the jail in Atlanta in which he's saying it's time. No, it's Birmingham. Birmingham jail. It's time that, uh, you know, the poor, the outcast, are recognized by the wealthy. That's the message of Amos. 
Did you present me with sacrifices and grain offerings in the wilderness for 40 years, O house of Israel? You also carried Sikkoth, your king, and Kayun, your images, the star of your gods which you made for yourselves. That is, the Jews are still practicing idolatrous religion. And because of this, Amos predicts their exile. Now Isaiah does something very similar, but he quotes directly. He says that he who kills an ox is like one who slays a man. Ox is a legitimate Jewish sacrifice, right? He who sacrifices a lamb, that's the typical sacrifice, is like the one who breaks a dog's neck. He who offers grain offering is like one who offers swine's blood. They're offering the proper offerings. They're not, you know, there could be nothing more blasphemous than to offer pig's blood on the altar in Jerusalem. And Isaiah says, well, that's exactly what you're doing. He who burns incense is like the one who blesses an idol. You're supposed to burn incense. But he says it's idolatrous religion because it is not combined with justice. It's not combined with righteousness. They have chosen their own ways and their soul delights in their abominations. So I will choose their punishments and will bring on them what they dread. Because I called but no one answered. I spoke but they did not listen. What is Isaiah saying constitutes idolatry? The religion of Israel. Just the regular sacrifices. It's become idolatrous religion because it's not combined with obedience. And so when John says, little children, keep yourselves from idols, he's just given us a whole book in which he's commanding obedience. He's saying we have to walk as Christ walked. And to imagine that you can practice a religion empty of righteousness, of following Christ, and that in some way it's still salvific, that's the equivalent of blasphemy. That's the equivalent of offering pig's blood on the altar in Jerusalem. The disobedience of the Jews is, and the disobedience of Christians can be equated with idolatry. Let justice roll down like waters and righteousness like an ever-flowing stream. I think that is, the, that is to be happening among us. So the practice of the religion has not helped in accomplishing God's purpose of righteousness. None are righteous. What did Paul recognize on the road to Damascus? The problem of evil runs right through Israel. The problem of evil runs right through him. He hadn't seen that before. The law is not the problem. Rather, the law points to the problem, which is sin and death and unrighteousness. So in this sense, idolatry is an inadequate description of the problem if it is not recognized that idolatry still serves as the marker of the evil in the world or of the evil world itself the difference between the Christian and the idolater describes the contrast between those in Christ 
and those who John says are under the, the sway of the evil one. And so John's threefold contrast has to do with obedience, the reality of God versus the unreality of the idol. Paul says the idol is nothing. It's not real. It has to do with the capacity of understanding versus darkness and no understanding. Anyone born of God, he says, does not continue to sin. So John, like Paul, I think he's using the marker of keeping the commandments, in this case the commandments of Christ, He's just said, you know, you have, to, you have to obey the great command, love God and love your neighbor. And if you don't do that, I think it's sort of the equivalent of Isaiah and Amos, that your religion reduces to a form of idolatry. So Paul emphasized that the law of the Old Testament marks an incapacity. But both Paul and John indicated that the capacity to obey the commandment of Christ points to the fact that one abides in Christ. By this, the children of God and the children of the devil are obvious, John says. Anyone who does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor the one who does not love his brother. The reason he does not continue in sin, because he abides in Christ. He is kept by Christ, is the the idea here. The devil does not touch the Christian because the son keeps him. And so because the son keeps him, the Christian does not persist in sin. I give eternal life to them and they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. Similar saying, you know, in the gospel by Jesus. My father who has given them to me is greater than all and no one is able to snatch them out of the father's hand. I and the father are one. And what did the Jews do at that point? They picked up stones to kill Jesus. John uses a word here for the power or the capacity for understanding. Uh, What he has given us in Christ or what we are given is understanding. Aside from his coming, there is no depth of understanding. Being a Jew, being an idolatry, idolater, being one of these Gnostic Christians who imagines they have a secret knowledge, it's all the same thing. There is only one place where a depth of understanding is to be found. This understanding is directly connected to the fact that God is true. Uh, in you know, John's using the word aletheia here. The aletheia, the truth, is in contrast to the lie or the idol. The idol is representative of the ultimate lie, believing in nothing. Jesus called himself the true uh, vine, the real bread, the way, the truth, and the life. Truly, truly, I say to you, it is not Moses who has given you the bread of heaven. But it is my Father who gives you the true bread of heaven. For the bread of God is that which comes down out of heaven and gives life to this world. Then they said, Lord, always give us this bread. And Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me will not hunger, and he who believes in me will never thirst. Jesus is saying, I am the ultimate reality. 
you can find sustenance for your life. Uh, the idol is nothing. The only real God is completely over and against the unreality opposed to idols. And so it's by being in his son Jesus Christ that we are in him who is true. All God's substitutes are idols. You know, this is Paul saying that the love of money is a kind of idolatry. All God's substitutes are idols and we must guard against them vigilantly. You know, this is the vigilance that John is warning us about. So let Christians once recognize who they are, what they have become, born of God, belonging to God, knowing God, in God the possessors of eternal life in Christ. And little children, keep yourself.